Spotify. Hello. Thank you for choosing the Lackadaisical Libricularist Podcast. Without further delay, here is your host, Jordan Maywood. Hello! Welcome to the LibroCube. My name is Jordan Maywood, and I am the Lackadaisical Libricularist. Today, my friends, is Movie Monday. Move over Monday. Well, actually, don't move over, but let Let's uh, make make a little room, slide over a scooch, so movies can fit in as well. Yeah, yeah. How about how about that idea? Something I like to say at the top of every show is there will be spoilers, folks. Please, please, don't be concerned for the amount of heed that I have. Take all of my heed with regards to this spoiler warning. Another thing I like to say is that if you like what you hear. The only payment I ask is a million yen. <laughs> no, that is ridiculous. The only payment I ask is perhaps you pass the podcast on to a friend. Perhaps you rate, subscribe, and comment in iTunes, as that is what helps others find podcasts. That will, of course, take us into our last piece of podcast related business and that is today's sponsor because you gotta get paid you gotta get paid today's sponsor is the mandarin chinese buffet and jewelry store once again today's sponsor is the mandarin chinese buffet and jewelry store. Thank you very much to them. Today, I have two movies. Dose. Not one, not three, but two. Coincidentally, sort of, they are both movies that are number three in their respective trilogies. So, uh, that's something that I sort of planned, but sort of didn't plan. If you have been following along with the last two Movie Mondays, you will be aware that one of the movies I'm going to talk about is, of course, Rush Hour 3, uh, because two Movie Mondays ago, watched Rush Hour 1, last Movie Monday, watched Rush Hour 2. You know what I'm going to do? Did? On the weekend? Washed. Washed. Yeah, washed it, cleaned it up real good. Watched the Rush Hour 3, because the misses for some inexplicable, cannot-be-defined-or-explained reason, is a huge, huge fan of the Rush Hour movie, which um, sort of boggles my mind a little bit. They are good movies. Uh, how about just unprofessional, as I do, so I don't forget to give out my ratings, mostly. Give out my rating right now. And Rush Hour 3, I'm going to go 3 out of 5 with the odd 4 moments. And I think that will fit for me, the series as a whole. Three three out of five, so enjoyed while watching, but probably would not watch again. That's my threes out of fives. With the occasional four out of five, yeah, that's really good moment. Just passing a car that is driving slow. Too slow for my liking. Not like these rush hour movies. <laughs> Rushing hour Although, I guess you're not going very fast during rush hour, are you? Okay, so that didn't make much a sense. Uh, on the note of the misses in these movies, she did point out, have you ever heard me laugh so hard 
at a movie, and no, I don't think I have, even movies that were much funnier than these ones, so I don't know what it is. I, I honestly, I tried to get her to pinpoint why she loves them so much, and it was unsuccessfully pinpointed. So she gives Rush Hour 1, 5, Rush Hour 2, 4 to 5, and Rush Hour 3, 4. Alright? Alright. Rush Hour 2 took place three days after Rush Hour 1. Rush Hour 3 took place three years after Rush Hour 2. So uh, that's kind of interesting. This one involves the same uh, Chinese ambassador that has been in a lot of turmoil over the course of his career, man. you think he'd get out of the biz. But he's fighting against the triads, the Chinese triads. So uh, I guess that's going to draw a lot of negative attention his way. So you get what you um, pay for? Hmm? Sure. Anyways, in this case, he was about to release a name of who the head of the Chinese triads is in a giant big meeting in front of a giant big window, which uh, turned out to be a not very smart idea because he was um, shot through said giant big window. Now, there are quite a few plot sort of holes, I think, in this movie. One of them being, if the head of the Chinese ambassadorship knew who the main bad guy is, you think he would just keep that in his head and not tell anyone? Mm, no, I do not think. I think he would write it down. He would have it sent in emails to people. <laughs> At the very least, he'd have, say, a notepad by his bed that said, Hey, if something happens to me, this is the these are the bad people. Huh? Huh? But no, uh, he did give the list, apparently, to his daughter. His daughter, who in one of the previous movies, although I can't remember which, was kidnapped. So, because of the shooting of this ambassador, the daughter makes Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker vow to find who did this to their father and get revenge. So, that's just what they set out to do. The first step is going to a, like, uh, a martial arts school of some sort. That was probably one of my favorite parts for a couple of reasons. One, they fought a giant uh, Chinese guy, and when I say giant, he had to be close to eight feet, I bet. He wasn't, I think the mists thought he was that uh, basketball player, oh, I forget his name, <laughs> but that's that's my lack of sports knowledge peeking through there. But no, it wasn't him. I think it might have been like the world's tallest man, that guy. I think it might have been. Anyway, so uh, I enjoyed that fight. And then sort of the highlight of the comedies of this movie for me is they had a sort of Abbott and Costello style who's on first uh, between the master of this martial arts school whose name was Yu, Y-U, and his apprentice whose name was me, M-I. So as you can imagine, Chris Tucker, trying to get information out of you and me, had a difficult time. And, uh, you? Yes, you. No, me? No, yes, me. I'm talking to you, not me. And things of that nature. Hmm? Who's on first? That sort of Elio. So totally ripped it off, but uh, made it their own. That's allowed. Another good part was, and this is another sort of plot hole, 
that all of the cops who were guarding this ambassador who was recovering in the hospital, who I suppose I should mention on that note, did not die, were suddenly called away. That is unbelievable. And I mean that in the very literal sense that I do not believe that someone who was a sort of muckety-muck in a government was attempted, assassinated, attempted to be assassinated, their guards are just going to be called away because of uh, an emergency. No, it doesn't make any sense. So then Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker go there and sort of have to protect him. Shit goes down there, and they end up capturing one of the people sent to finish the job. It turns out that the person they captured only speaks French. He is a Asian gentleman who only speaks French, which, uh... I suppose it's possible, and there's probably millions of, just like in Canada, there's millions, I assume, of Asian people who only speak English. There's probably millions or hundreds of thousands of people in, say, France who are of Asian descent yet only speak French. I suppose it makes sense. Yeah, why not? It's just not something you kind of think about, do you? So, because Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan do not speak French, they get a interpreter in the form of a nun. <laughs> Uh, a nun who has to translate all the dirty, dirty words, including several N-words, huh? <laughs> that this guy is spewing out in his anger of captivity. Oh, shit, I didn't write it down. But the nurse was a pretty famous actress as well. So uh, it was interesting to see her in this post. So, with the information they have gathered from this dude, they know they now have to go to Paris. First movie was L.A. and Hong, Hong Kong. Second movie was L.A., Hong Kong, and Las Vegas. This movie, L.A. and Paris. So I uh, always pretty jet-setty, which uh, I enjoy. They arrive in Paris to a not very warm reception from the Paris police. <laughs> the head of the Paris police guy gives them a anal cavity search, uh -huh, as you do, and uh, sort of advice of keep your noses clean, stay out of my city, stay out of my business, that kind of idea. Not very warm reception, and probably a not very comfortable reception, neither, neither, either. They make their way to a sexy Parisian club slash casino, where they're looking for a Genevieve, Genevieve who they eventually find, working in a cabaret, a sexy cabaret, where she does her routine. They find her because they do believe she has the name of the head of the uh, triads. Huh. It turns out, and this is where the spoilers are going to start coming fast and furious, turns out she has not only the name of the head of the triads, but rather tattooed on the back of our shaved head the name of all of the potential members of the triad. Because it turns out it's not just one leader. It is rather, I think it was 12 or 13. I think it was 13. Because I think actually 12 is unlucky in China. I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. And 13 is not unlucky, whereas it is in sort of Western world, 13 is unlucky. Interesting, interesting. So uh, all the people who could potentially fill the position of the triad leadership uh, are tattooed on her head. So obviously now it's a sort of race to protect this girl and get this information to the proper authorities. However, the proper authorities are in cahoots, some of them, as you do, as I do believe happened in the first two movies. There's always 
uh, and this is not relegated to the Rush Hour series, there always seems to be some sort of head, really super bad white guy behind the scenes. In this case, played by Mr. Max Von Sido, who is a gentleman actor who I do believe, if you got a look at, you'd be like, oh yeah, that guy. May not recognize the name, but uh, definitely a memorable face and been in a shit ton of movies. Uh, I looked at his IMDb page, and just a sort of interesting thing is that he did the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in the movie Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> How about that? Little known fact. He also did a voice in Skyrim, too. So, does a little voice acting and does actually have a very sort of memorable voice. Sort of a bit of a German accent, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of, I think, I do believe. So this guy, with his triad henchmen in tow, decides that they're going to kidnap this ambassador's daughter in order to uh, get Genevieve and kill Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. I should mention that the super baddest of the bad Asian triad folk in this turns out to be Jackie Chan's brother. What? Not biological brother, but they both grew up in an orphanage together. So that adds the extra little twist of Jackie Chan fighting bad guys, the head bad guy of which he doesn't want to kill because it's like his brother, and he loves him. His brother, who, being head of triadness, uh, doesn't really have the same um, compunction to not kill Jackie Chan, so it makes for some good fights, including the end of the movie where they fight a sword fight, a samurai sword fight at the top of the Eiffel Tower. That was good. I enjoy good sword fights. I've probably seen better, I suppose, but uh, when you put it on top of the Eiffel Tower, that, uh, that makes it uh, a little hand-sweaty, which I enjoy in my action movies. Quite often, it seems, in this movie, Jackie Chan will be having, like, the, the super, super bad, hard fighting of the, the absolute worst bad guy, while Chris Tucker's fighting a girl, <laughs> which uh, I like. Now, the girl that he's fighting is, quite often, and in this case, a badass in her own right, and definitely not someone I would want to tangle with. In this case, it was a girl, when we first met, did sort of that uh, fight where she had one of the Chinese fans, and by fans I mean, you know, like a little fan that you would wave in your face to cool off. However, hidden within this fan is a shit ton of knives that poke out so she can rip them and throw them at people. One of those type girls. Sexy yet deadly. So Chris Tucker ends up fighting her, getting his ass handed to him pretty good. He has sort of the final laugh, or cringe, I suppose, when he kicks her into the elevator gears that then squishes and cuts her in half. <laughs> so, yeah, gotta have one of those uh, super gory deaths bound to happen. This also has the sort of quintessential Jackie Chan's brother falling to his death. Jackie grabs him to save him, because he doesn't want to let his brother die. The brother tries to betray him, in fact does by pulling them both off together, they fall, and I don't know how accurate this is, into a sort of net that is below the Eiffel Tower to apparently catch people that jump off. I don't, I don't know if that's actually there. So they hop around that for a little while. Eventually the brother does get in this exact same position again where he's going to fall to his death. Jackie Chan tries to save him, and it's down to one of those, if Jackie doesn't let go, they'll both die. 
the brother is sort of resigned to his fate at this point and decides, you know what, I don't want us both to die. Jackie has done enough for me, I'm going to kill myself. This will leave it to the very, very last scene, which I like of this. Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker parachute off the top of the Eiffel Tower, Eiffel Tower, with the uh, French flag, you know, as you do, because they're getting shot at. They land in a fountain where, uh, conveniently, the Max von Sydow head white bad guy is there with a gun to jean Vieve's head. Just, you know, he just happened to be by the fountain, I guess. <laughs> Throwing pennies in, I don't know. And uh, he's about to shoot jean Vieve, And then, who saves the day? Is it Jackie Chan? No. Is it Chris Tucker? No. Is it the cab driver that picked them up from the French airport, the Parisian airport, um, days ago with the hope of being a spy like them? Yes. Yes, it is. So I very much like that, that the saving of the day at the very, very end of the movie is done by a sort of tertiary character who was uh, just in bits and pieces scenes. Uh, I, li- I like that fact. Uh, it was unexpected. And I always talk about on Movie Mondays mostly that when something unexpected happens in a movie ending, whether it's a sad ending, which you don't normally expect, or an ending like this, uh, it's, it's just good stuff. Oh, uh, you know what? Final, final note on this movie is that uh, the last sort of shot of the movie was Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker having a little dance-off to the song War, What Is It Good For? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Folks, I will be back in eight hours. For you, it will seem like much less. Um, Iron Man 3, coming up after this break. Love you, dearies. I'm a fool to do your dirty working, working, working. And we're back. We are back. We are back. We are back. We are back. Back. We are back. Back in action. Hello again. Eight hours of work completed. Working robot powering down. Why don't I jump right in? Right back in, even, to this movie Monday episode, because uh, I did not plan to devote my entire morning portion of this episode to Rush Hour 3, but uh, it kind of happened that way. So that means i got to get uh, Iron Man 3 done on my drive home. Iron Man 3 being, this may or may not be, su- be a surprise, being the better of the two movies, huh? I should give it more time than I devoted to Rush Hour 3. I suppose, I suppose. It's not necessarily true that that is something that should happen, just because quite often people will have more to say about uh, bad movies than they do about good movies. Look at the podcast, one of my favorites, called How Did This Get Made, which is a podcast devoted to bad movies. Hey, now... That being said, I don't want to say by any means Rush Hour is a bad movie trilogy. However, compared to Iron Man, it's a, it's a little apple and orangey. Now, the missus, for example, would disagree with that statement. And on her broken scale would, I do believe, give Rush Hour the original 5 out of 5 that she has done. And the original Iron Man, I bet you she'd go 2, maybe 3 out of 5 if I had to guess. 
And that is obviously insane. Uh, this is kind of a strange Iron Man movie just in the sense that I knew it existed. And I knew that the bad guy was Mandarin, played by Ben Kingsley. But that's kind of all I knew. For some reason, I don't think it was hyped as much as other uh, Iron Man 1 or Iron Man 2. Does anyone else feel that was the case? If you do, we can, as I like to do, get a little audience participation. You can tweet at me, Jordan underscore Maywood, or email me to the address provided in the closing credits. I would love to hear from you about that in particular or anything in general. Robert Downey Jr. has reply, rep, rep, reprised his role once again as Iron Man, and he is sort of perfect for this role. Do you, do you not find that? Uh, I, I sort of rack my brains a little bit. Not a full racking, but, but a half rack. Uh, to think of an actor who could so sort of quintessentially capsulate a fictional character such as Robert Downey does in these movies, and I had trouble and basically could not do them. So, again, if you have an example, tweet, email, love to, hear from you. Movie starts in a 1999 flashback where Robert Downey Jr., aka Tony Stark, aka Iron Man, is at a New Year's Eve party, getting his party on, and uh, in an elevator is having a brief but definitely for him forgettable conversation with a nerd dude who he then blows off. Now, this is a sort of uh, origin story, I guess you could call it, of another crazy bad guy in another superhero movie. So uh, I drew some, I drew some connections there. If you will recall, uh, Bruce Wayne sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of blew off uh, Mr. Jim Carrey, aka eventually the Riddler. Huh? Do you remember that? It had a very sort of the same feel. However, in this one, the blowing off was much more blatant and created, I do believe, a much more evil bad guy. So, if you are a super rich and powerful superhero, you're not going to want to blow off uh, nerdly types. Listen to what they have to say and um, get them to work for you rather than years down the road have them want their revenge on you and take it out in serious, serious ways. Meh? Meh. That is my advice. Also, if you are a super rich superhero, you give me some of your money. Lesson two. Mr. Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> I keep saying that. I should say Tony Stark is suffering from, I guess, what you could easily describe as post-traumatic stress disorder after the events of uh, the Avengers movie, which I will not give too much away about, because this is not what this is about. This is about Iron Man 3. However, shit went down in New York, and he's sort of suffering the effects of those events in that uh, he can't sleep, he's having the occasional panic attack, I guess is how you would describe it, and uh, the relationship between him and his girlfriend, Pepper Potts, which has got to be one of the stupidest names in the history of fictional characters, Pepper Potts. Hi, my name is Pepper. Pepper Potts. Yeah, 
played by, oh shit, what's her name? Gwyneth Paltrow? I'm not a huge, huge fan of her, but I want to say, on that note of me not being a huge fan of Gwyneth Paltrow, that she's very good in this movie. So, you know, that says a lot, I think. The fact that I'm not a huge fan of movies she has been in and her acting stuffs, yet in this movie, I very much enjoyed her. So, hey, there you go. The bad guy in this is the Mandarin, who, if you know anything about the comics or where I sort of know him from mostly is from the Iron Man animated television show. He's a bad guy in the television show. And I do believe in at least some of the comic books, he's like a Asian. Yeah. Chinese. I do believe in the, in the television show, he's like green of skin with pointy ears. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I do believe Definitely in the television show, and I do believe in the comics as well, had uh, powers, powers granted to him by ten rings that he wore on his ten fingers. In this movie, we're bringing it a little more realistic, I suppose, in that it's played by the actor Ben Kingsley. He is not green. He is, in fact, human. He does not actually have rings, be they magical or otherwise. He, in fact, has no powers. He, in fact, and this is kind of a super huge big spoiler, so I'm emphasizing it. Despite my spoiler warning at the top of the show, this is a very, very big one that would ruin the movie. I kind of, if you don't know it. And that is, Ben Kingsley is playing an actor who is playing the Mandarin. Let me explain. The nerd gentleman that Iron Man blew off in 1999 hired an actor to pretend to be the Mandarin, to pretend to have a sort of terror war on the globe. Okay? So Ben Kingsley, and this is very strange that he kind of agreed to do this, I think, is not actually the bad guy of, is just a sort of patsy. He's playing a pawn in the game of this nerdy guy. He is literally an actor playing, a hired actor playing the Mandarin. So uh, I kind of didn't like that in the sense that they have this bad guy from the Iron Man lore that they pulled from the lore and then made him just sort of a, a, a pansy, a patsy. That being said, <laughs> ben Kingsley, friggin' amazing actor that he is, did do some good things with this role. He kind of plays like a druggy, sex addict, drunkard, who the nerd guy has to sort of whip into shape occasionally to put him in front of a camera to terrorize the globe. So uh, it's an interesting role, but I kind of wish that Ben Kingsley was a super, super badass, because I think he would pull that off better, as he has done in say, a movie like Sexy Beast. Like, if you took Ben Kingsley from Sexy Beast and then turned him into a, a, a green, pointy-eared dude with ten magical rings, <laughs> it's goddamn crazy, but I think it may have just worked. Imagine, although I never heard, that this caused quite a uproar in the nerd community. That's just a thought, because... Despite being a nerd, I'm not a huge comic book nerd in the sense that I don't read a lot of comics. Now, I kind of know more than your average Joe about all comics and comic book characters and storylines, but I, 
the actual reading of comic books I don't do a lot of, just because I find that I, and this has come up from time to time, I find that when I read comic books, I enjoy them while reading them, but I always kind of feel like I'm cheating on book books actual just word, just words printed in them books. So they always kind of pulled me back in, and comic books never really call to me like book books do. Okay? Okay. Now, comic book movies, comic book television shows especially, I uh, have a great, great love of and have seen just about every comic book television-related anime animated show that I think is out there. Definitely very, very high percents of them I have seen. If, oh, I'm just going left, right, center here with audience participation. If there's any out there that you think I should see that are perhaps not greatly well known, uh, let me know, because uh, I'm always on the prowl for them. So the bad guys, the nerdly bad guys plan, evil master plan, hmm, definitely, is sort of many-fold and it's all over the globe. Uh, part of it is, yes, the involving of Ben Kingsley as sort of a figurehead for his evil organization. However, a lot of it has to do with this... Uh, I don't really know how they described it, per se, in the movie, because it went kind of deep. But uh, I'm going to call it this formula. And that's not 100% accurate, but it will do for our purposes. Our formula that is sort of a combination of many things... In including sort of the super soldier formula that created Captain America, along with, you know, gamma rays that created the Hulk, and just a whole schmozzle of different things in this injectionable formula that is sort of part that, part uh, drug, let's call it. And he's spreading that around the globe for the reason that um, I don't really get why he would want to create around the globe superhuman folks. The other thing is that this formula has a percentage chance to A, possibly change you into a superpowered individual, which I'll get into, or B, um, cause you to explode in a fiery explosion and kill everyone around you. So, you know, you gotta kind of uh, roll with the punches on that one. This nerdly guy did survive the process. So he, along with quite a few people in this movie, have survived this process, which allows them to sort of generate heat, is a way you can look at it. A combination of generate heat, this generating of heat also gives them a, the ability to heal themselves, uh, regrow limbs, super strength, and I think the super strength comes in from the fact that a regrowed limb that these folks possess is like super strong after it has been regrown. Something along those lines. Whatever. It's, uh, you know, you could just as easily say magic as you can say science in things such as this, and they're sort of interchangeable, but whatever. It's fun. There's scenes in this movie in which uh, Robert Downey has, <laughs> where Tony Stark uh, has lost his suit. And he's sort of that lone man who's suitless and powerless and uses nothing but his wits and the help of a young kid at one point. And uh, I kind of like that. It gives you a little more sense of urgency when, say, Batman is without his tools or 
Iron Man suitless has to sort of fend for himself. And uh, I like the fact that quite often they can, and they do it through the use of their brains rather than their brawn. So uh, I always like that. It's been done before, but I like it. Don Cheadle reprises his role as War Machine, and uh, he has that same sort of vibe in that he goes for a time suitless and has to rely on his army training. The movie ends. I'm getting close to home, so I'll have to sort of jump around and forward a little bit. The movie ends with a showdown. A very, very good showdown. Uh, one of the best end-of-movie showdowns I've seen in quite a while, actually, uh, between a bunch of these super-hot bad-guy henchmen. And by that, I mean temperature-hot. Although, perhaps, I'm not a good judge of the male physique, uh, perhaps some of them were just sexy as well. I don't know. Who am I to judge? Uh, so them battling Iron Man, because of the fact that Tony Stark was not able to sleep, he was spending his sleepless nights creating a shit ton of other suits, suits that could be could be controlled by Jarvis. Jarvis, his sort of right-hand man, artificial intelligence. So Iron Man, the nerd bad guy who sort of souped up all of these suits and all of these sexy, hot <laughs> henchmen. So uh, it was really, really good and incredibly well done. As you can imagine, this battle ended with the main bad guy being killed. However, what I like about it is that not killed by Iron Man, although he did a pretty good job, but rather killed by Pepper Potts. Pepper, 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 pepper Potts. Pepper Potts, who... Uh, for some strange reason, no idea why, the nerdy bad guy decided that he was going to inject this formula into Pepper Potts. Uh, he had a reason for doing it that made sense to him. Nah. Although, if you have a formula that creates superhuman, incredibly powerful beings, would you inject someone who is not on your side with said formula? I kind of don't think you would. Yeah, kind of uh, think that would be a bad idea. And if you are a super nerdy guy who invented this formula, or helped invent it, or whatever, yeah, not good in your planning stages to do that. It's still, uh, it's kind of nice that in both Iron Man 3 and Rush Hour 3, the day was saved by not main characters, sort of uh, tertiary characters. Good, good stuff. So a little uh, surprise at the end. I'm at home, so I'm going to stop talking momentarily. Uh, I just want to say that uh, the post-credits, which quite often people will not know these things exist, so uh, it's kind of nice, I suppose, to bring it up here, just in case you missed it. Post-credits, quite often in Marvel movies, you'll have a little, little something. For example, in the Avengers, they all sort of sat around and got, got their uh, shawarma on. Uh, in this one, it's Robert Downey Jr., a.k.a. Iron Man, sitting with the Incredible Hulk, a.k.a. Mark Ruffalo. I did those backwards there. And it turns out he was having sort of a therapy session with Mark Ruffalo this entire time, and it was just sort of him telling the story, which kind of makes sense because occasionally there would be a sort of narration coming from... Robert Downey Jr. over the course of these events, so uh, that kind of fit into place with that at the end. And I liked it. I liked it very much. Folks, 
that will leave one final thing to say, and that is, it is nice to be nice to the nice. Oh boy, in a very, very rare occurrence, uh, here's a little recording after I've said it's nice to be nice to the nice. Why am I doing this? Well, for the reason that I um, forgot to give my rating of Iron Man 3. See, people, you probably think to yourself from time to time, why does this idiot give out his ratings before he even starts talking about the movie? That is very unprofessional. And every time I do it, I say it's because sometimes I forget to give my rating. So, um, now I can use this as a sort of perfect example of what can happen. <sighs> uh, I'm going to go sort of convoluted rating style as I do and say that I debated... Uh, giving Iron Man 3 a 5 out of 5, but I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5. Okay, convoluted rating completed, episode completed, so I will say again, and it doesn't hurt to say this twice, because it's very important, that it is nice to be nice to the nice. Thank you for listening. We here in the Liberal Cube would love to hear from you. If for any reason you would like to contact us, you can do so via the email address, mailwood.jordan at gmail.com. And now I have a theory. I've got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. Something isn't right there. I've got a theory. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met. Wait till you see that sunshine day. You ain't seen nothing yet. The best is yet to come and be. Won't it be fine? The best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. Live long and prosper.